Hey, welcome to Whatcha Doin' with Brandon Horry Williams. And today's special guest is... I'm Ed Dixon. I'm an actor and a writer and a composer and a teacher. I've done, I don't know, 15 Broadway shows. I have a Helen Hayes Award. I have a Drama Desk Award. I have a Drama Desk nomination for Best Actor. Uh, I've written, I don't know, between 20 and 30 plays and musicals, and almost all of them have been done somewhere. Um, Fanny Hill was probably the most successful in New York with several uh, nominations. And uh, Georgie, uh, My Adventures with George Rose, which I wrote and starred in off-Broadway, uh, won the Drama Desk for Best Solo Performance three years ago. And my little musical, Who Done It the Musical, um, a six-person, one-set musical has been done dozens of times all around the country. So that's 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 a nutshell right there. Great. Well, we are so thrilled to welcome you, Ed, to um, What You Doing, our new <laughs> podcast series. And um, so, just to get started, as you stated, you've you know your theater career has taken you through about fifteen Broadway shows many national tours, a Drama Desk Award, a Helen Hayes Award, and a bunch of other nominations. Can you take us a little bit back to where this theater journey started and kind of how you got to where you are today? Okay. I grew up in Oklahoma. In, I was born in 1948, so I really grew up in the 50s in Oklahoma, which if I tried to describe it to you, I could do it all day and you still wouldn't grasp what it was like. <laughs> and my father was a revival minister in some evangelical cult and, and we moved from city to city. I mean, it was all just indescribable. But about the time I got in junior high school, I saw a musical at the local high school and my response as a junior high school student was to try to write my own musical. I'd only seen one. <laughs> and my teacher it, it was just appalled. My chorus teacher, like, what did, what did I think I was doing? She wasn't at all encouraging. By the time I got to high school, I had committed myself that this was gonna be my career. I starred in a bunch of my high school shows and I wrote three musicals, book music and lyrics while I was in high school. And, I mean, when I look back on it, I'm like, what the hell? And <laughs> then I got an audition for uh, the Manhattan School of Music, and I needed to enter several groups of classical songs. And for the American group, I entered my own songs. And people said, oh, you can't do that. You'll be disqualified. And I got a full scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music, and I moved to New York. And Shortly after I got here, I realized that I really needed to start my career. I didn't need to be in school any longer. So I got a job in um, New Jersey on the Jersey Shore Surflight Summer Theater. I, I did well. 10 shows in 11 weeks. I starred in five of them. I was in the chorus of five of them. And we did experimental children's theater in the morning before rehearsal. And we got $25 a week. Wow. 
And that's how it started. Great. And so you did mention, um, you know, how you got your start in writing. And as you stated, your career has taken off with writing as well. So you, you hadn't stopped that particular um, theater passion of yours. So, you know, as a writer and composer, um, one of the examples being your musical Shylock that you wrote and composed and received the Drama Desk Award for, is that correct? I, I thought of something this morning while I was shot that I want to tell you. This, is, this show was a limited run. It closed. And I came home one day and there was a message from the uh, publicist saying, you've been nominated for Best Actor and you're nominated with Robert Lindsay, Colm Wilkinson and Mandy Patinkin. And I thought he was punking me because the show had closed. And I was like, how dare you? And then I got the newspaper <laughs> and it was actually true. I mean, life is amazing. Wow. So that's, that is amazing. So can you just tell us how the experience is performing your own work? Because you have done it several times at this point and, and they have led to some incredible um, recognitions for you. If, if you're going to write something, you have an enormous sense of responsibility because clearly you are responsible for what the work is. But if you're also starring in it, um, it's... <laughs> The pressure is just, when I was really young, my first piece was done in the 70s in New York. It was produced by the National Jewish Theater and it was a subject matter based on the Catholic mass, which so it was preposterous that they were doing it. I just, I'll never grasp how this happened. And I was also starring in it and I'd never done anything before. And the producer said to me before I walked on, um, are you nervous? I said, no, I can't wait to do it. But it's funny, as you get older, with every passing year, the sense of responsibility becomes more vivid. And the night that Georgie opened in New York, I was in my dressing room and it was a weird setup where you, once you were in the dressing room, you couldn't come back out because the only way to get out was through the audience. So I was locked in there. I couldn't talk to anybody. And as we got closer and closer to go time, I just thought my head was going to blow off. And I started spontaneously talking to some of my mentor mentors who are no longer with us. That was the way I decided to deal with the pressure that night. Great. Now, and, and, and while we're still on the subject of, you know, composing and writing, how do you find it to be um, rewarding, challenging, and has it been, you know, more or less challenging as a writer and composer to balance your life as an actor on the stage as well? Um, it's funny that that hasn't really been a problem. The way I have always approached my career until this year is I'm just always working. For the last 50 years, I was basically just always working. So whether I was teaching, or composing, or writing, or acting, or preparing for an audition, or preparing for a role, I was just always working. And that's what I thought life was. It only occurred to me really late in life that there might be other things other than working every single moment of every single day. And in this, I've all this time for reflection that I've had this year, you know, I'm old now, so 
the thing I really enjoy the most these days is going to the park and uh, feeding the squirrels. I mean, and if anybody had ever told me that I would think that was one of the highlights of my life, I would tell them they were crazy. So it's very funny to find myself in, in this position. I mean, it took all of the stuff that I've done. I would say, given my repressive childhood, my entire adult life was trying to prove something to myself or to somebody else, which although it's a very good tool for getting things done, it's, I, I don't think that's a very savvy life choice. I don't think there's, a, it's not the most satisfying life choice. It, it certainly is a way to get things done though. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, shifting gears a little bit to what we touched upon, you know, you've, you've been in 15 Broadway shows to date. Some of them include Mary Poppins, The Scarlet Pimpernel, um, Anything Goes, um, Les Mis, of course, and The Iceman Cometh, amongst others. So what did, you know, is there a particular show or two that you found most challenging? And then did you find any of them to be most rewarding and why? Was it something at, at that point in your life or was it your Broadway debut? Well, you know, because my Broadway debut, I was so young and um, I, I actually had left New York after my uh, Manhattan School of Music and a musical conductor remembered an audition of mine, called me. I was doing stock in uh, Casa Manana. The green room phone rang and he offered me No No Nanette, my first Broadway show over the phone while I was in Texas. I mean, it was so surreal. And I got in a Volkswagen van and drove across the country and started a new life. I mean, I had to get an apartment and everything. And that show was starring Ruby Keeler, who was had starred in all these Hollywood movies back in the old days with Busby Berkeley directing. And Busby Berkeley was there. And Irving Caesar, who wrote Tea for Two, was there and wanted to tell us stories. All he wanted, but he always had a cigar in his mouth and he was extremely abrasive. And I would always run away and I would think years later, I thought, you know, he knew Irving Berlin, he knew Cole Porter, he worked on Tin Pan Alley, you could have asked him anything, but as a young guy, I just ran away when he was around. But it was so glittering. And of course, everybody in Hollywood came to pay homage to Ruby Keeler, who everyone admired, she was the loveliest person. And so every single living Hollywood star from the old days came and we met them all. They would, we would stand on stage after the show and in would come Lucille Ball or, <laughs> I mean, whoever, you know, the, we met everybody. We, we met Richard Nixon. I shook hands with Nixon. <laughs> so when, you know, I was in the chorus, but, but still because it was my Broadway debut and because it was such, and it was a huge hit. Oh my God. And, um, so it always occupies a very special place for me, even though I hardly did anything in it. Um, other than that, I got to do the first revival of Sunday in the Park with George. And uh, Sondheim worked with us the entire rehearsal process. James Lapine, we got to go to a party at 
Sondheim's home and, you know, being in Sondheim's home in Sondheim's composing room with his piano and his pencils and his, I mean, I was just taking pictures of everything and hoping that nobody was seeing me. <laughs> it was so gross, but I'm like, no, no, I have to take pictures. <laughs> so that, that was, and doing Sunday, Sunday is the most emotional, brilliant, brilliant show. And to be a part of it and to be a part of that number Sunday is I, I don't know how many times we performed it before I was able to make it through that number without crying. I mean, it's just overwhelming. So I'll always be grateful for that. And, you know, Sondheim hates the whole thing of like selfies and pictures and all that. It's just so not him. But I found myself alone with him down in the downstairs um, green room of the theater one day, just the two of us. And I thought, Ed, He's going to hate this, but if you don't do this, it would be equivalent to being in a room with Shakespeare or Mozart and not getting the photo. So I asked him and he was very kind and we got a great shot, but then somebody saw us and then a whole line of people came up to try to take a picture with him and he got very pissed and I, I was glad to be out of the room by that point. That's great. That Those are great stories. So Brandon already mentioned that you uh, had a tenure uh, in Les Mis. So oh, a tenure, indeed a tenure. I did. <laughs> so uh, how was that experience just being a part of like the biggest hit musical at that moment? Let me tell you a truly extraordinary story. I just thought I was going to be in it the first time I heard it. And the character that I identified with was Javert at that time in my life. And I knew the movie, so I thought I was kind of heavy at the time. And the movie, it's a Charles Lawton. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be that character. So I go in and audition for it. And um, they weren't interested in me for that at all. The show was a huge hit. and. It, you couldn't get a ticket to save your life. And I had an audition for Jean Valjean. So it's an onstage audition, which is a kind of a rare thing. So I'm on the stage of this gigantic hit that you can't get a ticket for. And I sing Bring Him Home and it goes wonderfully. And then they, they want the high be natural in full voice, which I really didn't have. So they said, do you have something funny? And I thought, oh, that's the end of my Jean Valjean audition. So I do something in the Tenardier vein. And from the back of the house, I hear, will you sing Master of the House? And I said, I really don't know it. So they said, go down into the pit and read it with the, the accompanist. So I go down into the pit and I see that the accompanist who's been playing for me is an old friend of mine. So I sit next to her on the bench. I put my arm around her. I rock back and forth. I cold read Master of the House. And I hear from the back of the auditorium, so will you do it? And, and I said, don't you think you should call my agent? And they said, oh, we will. But do you want to do it? And I'm like, this is not how show business works. This, this is like a movie musical. So they the guy is leaving who's playing Tenardi and they want me to come in in a week. And I didn't know it at all. And it's the biggest hit in New York. And I said to them, I, 
I can't do this in a week. I can't. I mean, master of the house is complicated. And um, so they give me 10 days. So I have 10 days and they throw me into it. I hardly meet the rest of the company because they're all booked up. Um, you can't just call them all into rehearsal when you're doing this three and a half hour long show every day. And uh, so I was put in it by the stage manager. I'm scared out of my mind. And as I walk out to do my first performance, I'm thinking, I bet you the ushers at the back of the house know this song better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it was just everything about it was surreal. And I mean, to be in a huge hit like that, that's already a hit and the responsibility of making it a hit doesn't fall on you. It's the, you know, it was an extraordinary experience and uh, I did it 1700 times. I mean, this, this is the kind of experience that you realize most people will never have. No, most people will never do a hundred performances of a show. And a lot of people that consider themselves rather serious, just never ever have that kind. And things happen to you when you do something a thousand times, you, all of the artifice is stripped away. So like, if I'm having a bad day, if I'm having depression or anger or whatever, and a line comes that is about depression or anger, your real life just spills into the moment. So there always is the possibility to have it be a living thing instead of a repetitious dead thing. But under any circumstances, your brain does not like to repeat a three and a half hour mantra eight times a week. It just doesn't like, and so periodically your brain will just fritz out, you know? <laughs> and I, during the four years that I did it, I saw every character make a mind-boggling error, <laughs> just completely missing the high note or completely forgetting the punchline or completely missing an entrance. I mean, you just, if you do something that many times, you see everything you can imagine, you know? That, yeah, that is amazing. It really is. And who was at the company, who was in the company with you at the time? Or were there many rotations? Oh, many rotations. I mean, um, great. Am I Craig Shulman was uh, the best Valjean that I did it with. He was like a rock. I mean, he could pump that out. He was the kindest, nicest man. And one day, you know, doing eight shows, the show was uncut at that time. So it was like three and a half hours long. On the two show days, you'd be so fried. You didn't know which way it was up. And one day I like put my hands on his shoulder to like pat him on the shoulder. And I thought, oh my God, you feel like a brick. <laughs> he just, he could just absolutely muscle through everything every day. Yeah. Uh, and I, I worked with a number of extraordinary uh, Fontaines. I, I, I just can't think who was the best, but I did it with just almost everyone. Yeah. I, I even did it with Randy Graff the first week. She left immediately, but uh, I got to do it with her. Wow, that's great. I mean, so, you know, on top of that, you were cast as a soloist in a show called Mass. At oh, the my Kennedy God. Um, that, that is a true, if you read my book, 
the main reason I wrote my book was because I really wanted to talk about the backstage business in No No Nanette and the backstage scenario of Mask because they were both incomprehensible. And that those were just my first two shows. Um, I was in um, the chorus of No No Nanette when I went to the audition for Mask. When my agent called and gave me the audition, the idea that I was going to audition for a show by Leonard Bernstein, the first album I ever bought in my life in Oklahoma was West Side Story. So the idea that I was going to audition for something that he had written was just mind boggling. So I go and they call me back. So my agent calls and says, show up at NOLA Studios at noon on such and such a day and Bernstein's going to be there. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, I mean, it already, it, the whole situation was beyond belief to me. And they said, bring every kind of music that, that you've got because he wants to hear everything like from jazz to pop to rock to classical so i bring this huge sheath of music and i show up at the largest of all the nola rehearsal studios which has an actual stage so i look into the room and there sits alvin ailey stephen schwartz leonard bernstein i mean a, a super famous producer, a, a super a Gordon Davison, the famous director, all in a row. And I'm 22 at the time. And <laughs> I didn't particularly like the way it went because after I did several things for them, Stephen Schwartz really wanted me to have something pop and I really never had sung pop. And so the last thing that happened was, oh, this didn't go right. So I left there thinking that I had not gotten it and I went home and threw up. And then the next day the phone rings and they tell me I got it. And I, I just, it was so unbelievable to me. So I go to No No Nanette and I turn in my notice to this really unpleasant stage manager woman. And she was such a pill. And I'm just getting ready. I'm standing stage left. I'm getting ready to walk in in a beautiful tuxedo and sing back up for Helen Gallagher and Where Is My Hubby Gone Blues. And she, the stage manager shoves my notice back into my hand and says, you're on a six month rider. I'm not accepting your notice. And I walked <laughs> on stage and stood behind Helen Gallagher and cried out loud during her entire song. <laughs> the union upheld me saying they cannot prevent you from doing a principal role in a new show while just because you signed a chorus contract. So good old equity stood up for me and I got to open the Kennedy Center. I mean, arriving at the Kennedy Center and seeing this brand new building rising from the Potomac and there's this unbelievable statue in the in the lobby of of a, a bust of John F. Kennedy and all of the Ke living Kennedys came to opening night. I mean, working every day with Bernstein, with Alvin Ailey, it, it I mean, and it, I was 23 by this time. And if you're 23, it's really not possible to grasp the enormity of something like this. The Kennedy Center is only going to open once. You're only going to create a gigantic show with Leonard Bernstein once, you know, 
in, retro, in retrospect, it becomes very clear just how rarefied the experience was. And then we moved it to the Metropolitan Opera. Wow. So, so I got to make my Metropolitan Opera debut. I mean, it was a truly extraordinary time. Wow. Um, I just wanted to ask you also a little bit about your touring life. Um, having included touring America with Anne Margaret in the oh best of the whorehouse in Texas, with Ben Vereen in Pippin, <laughs> you played Max in Sunset Boulevard. So what did you learn from some of these, you know, incredible experiences touring around the country with, um, you know, theater royalty? Yeah, on, I, the good fortune that I've had is, at this point in my life, there's a lot of reflection. And, and when I reflect on, I got to be with Anne Margaret for a year and a half every day. 9-11 happened while I was with Anne Margaret. She stopped the show every night at the curtain call and sang God Bless America and the whole audience joined in. And you could see old men who'd been in World War II standing with their hands over their hearts. I mean, it was just freaking overwhelming. But in terms of her star power, I mean, kids like you do not understand how huge she was. I mean, she was dating Elvis. She was the most famous sex pot in the world. The Flintstones made a character out of her that everybody recognized. And she was mind-bogglingly famous and a kind of person that you could never imagine you'd even meet, you know? And, um, and there I was seeing her in her wig cap, putting having her makeup put on every day. <laughs> she was absolutely as delicious as anybody I've ever met. And I never stopped being starstruck ever. On my birthday, uh, the first year, she grabbed me by the lapels in the hallway, pulled me in and kissed me on the lips and sang happy birthday to me as Marilyn Monroe. And... <laughs> It was so overwhelming. And then afterwards I thought, my God, I have one degree of separation from Elvis. And the most extraordinary thing, she was very, 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 very close to her mother. We arrived in Dallas for a, a long run and her mother died. So she jumped on a plane and flew to California and the promoter was hysterical that we had all these sold out shows and Anne Margaret was out. So he began haranguing her to come back immediately. And as soon as her mother had been buried, she got on a plane, flew back. And when I saw her get out of her limo to come to the stage door, she was so shattered, she could hardly walk. And I thought, how the hell is she gonna do this show? She said the first line and I heard her voice and I burst into tears in the wings and she made it through the whole show and she got to the final number that they'd put in for her, you were a friend to me. And she barely made it through the song. And when she got to the last, you were a friend to me, she just broke down sobbing. But then we were thrown immediately into a fully staged curtain call. And during it, I was the governor and I'd shut her place down. So she was supposed to shove me and say, you shut me down. So. We get to that point, she walks up to me and just like with the birthday kiss, she grabs me by the lapels, she pulls me and she says, oh, I ain't mad at you and kisses me right on the lips. Oh my God. I got to tour in Pippin with Ben Vereen uh, 
I don't even know how long that tour lasted. And um, I had seen him do it on Broadway and it was so overwhelming. And here I was playing Charlemagne and I was young. I, I think I was like somewhere between 30 and 35, much too young to be playing Charlemagne. But th there I was. And um, I have some wonderful pictures of that and some wonderful memories. Sunset Boulevard was, I mean, that original set, I don't know if you're aware, but it was so overwhelming. And the things that that set did were so, the first arrival of that mansion, I've never seen anything like it. And that I got to ride on that set and that I got to be on that set when it was flying and it flies in and lands on New Year's Eve. And I was pouring champagne on that set every item on that set was so realistic that even when you were standing right next to it, you felt like you were in a mansion. I mean, and Linda Balgord on the tour was Norma Desmond and she's one of my closest friends. So the whole ending sequence for us was just overwhelmingly emotional. That, that was a great, great experience. Excellent. Excellent stories from touring as well. <laughs> um, so, Ed, where were you prior to the COVID shutdown? And um, as a follow-up, how have you been adjusting? So what have you been up to um, throughout the last several months? Well, leading up to COVID, I had a very busy year last year, and I was on the road the entire time. And I last year, I was 71, about to turn 72, and I was really finding the touring really difficult in a new way. And at one point I was doing My Fair Lady. I've, I've played virtually every part in My Fair Lady. And I was getting ready to make my entrance in Florida. And I suddenly, I heard the overture and I thought, good God, the first time I did this show was 1965. And here I am doing it. And something clicked. I just felt fed up for the first time really ever. And when I came home, I put my bags down and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to do that again. I've never had that thought in my life. And I sat with it and I called my agents and I said, uh, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know if this is a post midlife crisis or, or a breakdown or what, but I just, I, I need some space. And so they stopped sending me out and a week later, the pandemic hit. So I was in a unique situation to deal with the shutdown. Uh, I mean, of course I was right at ground zero. So I was very aware that I was in a lot of danger. Uh, I don't have any problem staying in my house all day, writing, composing. Um, the first thing I did was write a children's musical with somebody I barely knew. He just asked me to do it. And I thought, I don't have anything to do. Sure, I'll write the score. So I did. And um, then I started um, reworking some old projects of mine. I pulled out an old uh, children's theater piece that I'd never really finished and a three-person thriller that I hadn't really finished. And I started working on those. And you know, I, I have, I'm on two pensions and I have savings and I don't have to do anything. I, I, I do some teaching on Skype, but I don't have to. And so the whole 
problem that most people were dealing with during the pandemic, I really wasn't having. I have some survivor guilt over that because it really hasn't been cruel to me and it's been so cruel to so many people. Uh, I'm very grateful, but I have such a sense of the randomness of life that it's just wiped out some people and I just sit here, you know, composing or writing or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so just for our audiences, you know, it's mainly comprised of uh, up and coming or young artists. So we just like to know what advice do you have for these young artists and students trying to make it in the business? Okay. You know, of course, the business is so different now than it was. Uh, Helen Gallagher, who won the Tony for No No Nanette, made her Broadway debut in 1948, and she'd seen everything. And she said to me, when I started, all you had to have was one time step and 16 bars, and you'd never stop working. By 1970, when I made my Broadway debut, it had so radically changed. You needed to be so facile in so many areas. 10 years later, you needed to be even more facile in more areas. And now, one of the most talented people I know, Natalie Charles Ellis, can absolutely sing anything. She can do anything. And she's been in the chorus of one show after another. But when you look at her talent platform, she could be starring in things, but she's been in the chorus of, of half a dozen Broadway shows. And she's a young person who's really making it. And that's how challenging it is. And now with um, COVID, I don't know what's going to happen when the world starts going again or how difficult. It, it's now so expensive to live in Manhattan that if it's your dream to move here and be on Broadway, I don't really see how you're supposed to do it. But in terms of what's required, uh, I teach, I've been teaching my whole life. And I notice a lot of young people that I've coached try to do show business like they're working in an office or like they're in a secretarial pool, like they just want to get a job and do as little as possible. It's my opinion that you have to do more than anybody else. So like if, if you have an audition next week, I would suggest working on that audition all day, every day until next week. Be off book if you can. Uh, if you think that you need a different outfit to make them see you as this, then you have, then you need to get that. If you need a haircut in order to make them, I mean, whatever you have to do, because if there are 200 people trying to be considered for something and you want to win, I think you have to do every single thing that you can possibly think of to try to move to the front of the line. And in terms of your vocal skills, that has to be constant. I often have people come to me for an audition next week and they haven't been working on their voice for three or four months previous to this audition. It doesn't work that way. You have to do it every day. Uh, you're gonna need to move. So you need to be in some sort of dance class and uh, you need to act. So you're gonna need to be in an acting class and it, you have to do all of these things all the time. And if you have to have a survival job in order to, make, then you have to do all of these things 
in addition to that. You know, Excellent. when I made my cabaret debut, it was like 1980. I taught all day um, the day that I made my cabaret debut because I needed to pay for the publicity for it. And that was the price of the gig. If I, if I wanted this cabaret gig to succeed, I was going to have to work all day on the day that I was opening the show. I mean, it, I just find, and maybe this is my own demented um, view, I just think everything is so much more work than we want it to be. Like, and and if, if, if you're in sync with that, I mean, if you really want to be an actor, how is it painful that you would work on your acting all day, every day? Or if you want to be a singer, how, what, how, what kind of punishment is it that you have to work on your singing all day, every day? Right. Well, that's excellent advice. Thank you for offering that up to our audiences and to students and artists. Um, I, I just want to add one more thing to the whole audition thing. You have, everybody hates auditions, but you have to commit utterly to the audition process. You don't do as little as possible. You do as much as possible for your preparation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, we've heard some of your incredible stories throughout the show today um, from your incredible career, but is there one that you haven't shared yet that just comes to mind that you love to tell? Um, it, or if if you've already told all of your favorites, we can skip right to the next question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll always have an enormous soft spot for Shylock. Um, that was so important important to me at that time. And the show was not a success. It pissed people off <laughs> that I took a Shakespeare classic, composed it into an opera and starred myself in it. I mean, it's so cheeky that there was one major critic who just really said kudos to you. And he saw to it, he was the head of the nomination committee and he saw to it that I got nominated. But some particularly young critics really hit me like, who do you think you are? And that's something you have to be prepared for if you're gonna try to swing out. Uh, but the work of my lifetime was really Georgie, my adventures with George Rose. George Rose was the most important character actor of the 20th century, and I toured with him when I was very young, and it co completely changed my viewpoint about virtually everything. And he was violently murdered, and I had visited him in the Dominican Republic, and I met the people who killed him, and I had all this background information that I sat on for many, many years, and eventually I thought enough time has passed I'm gonna tell this mind boggling story. And I was passionately driven to do it. Nothing could stop me from doing it. We lost one set of producers and got another. We lost those and got, we lost one theater and got another. We lost another theater and got it. Finally, by the time we opened, that was like our fourth theater. Nothing was gonna stop me from doing that show. And then to win the, the drama desk, I mean, it was just, overwhelming and i'm so grateful for that performance and i look back at it now and i thought wow that was really a lot of work 
<laughs> Absolutely, but worthwhile work. Oh that. my gosh, that yeah. was that was literally life changing. It changed my life. Well, what a great note to end on with that story. So, <laughs> thank you for joining thank us. You. Thank Congratulations you. Congratulations on your incredible career. Um, one last thing, uh, you've mentioned this a little throughout uh, the interview, but you've written a book called Secrets of Life on Stage and Off. Yeah. Uh, where can we, can you take us like through a bit of like what you write about in this book and like, where can we find it? Well, at the time I wrote it, it, it was about 40 or 45 years of theater history. I very briefly pass over my childhood because I, I had no interest in talking about, and get right to No No Nanette and getting started in, in show business. And it's stories about all the famous people. And I mean, we, we didn't even get to this today, but in the 1980s, I had a really horrific drug addiction that uh, upended my life. And I re after I recovered, the bulk of my career has been after that, after that horrific experience. And I thought I need to write a book. So if somebody else is going through something this horrible, they need to know that it's possible to pick yourself up and go on and have not only as good a life, but a better life than the one you had before. And that's the real reason I wrote the book. The company, <laughs> that published my book went bankrupt during th this uh, period. I think it's still available on amazon.com and you can buy uh, used copies of it there. So I don't think there's any danger of it disappearing. So if you Google around for Secrets of Life on stage and off, uh, you, you can definitely get it. It is, you know, 45 years of theater history. And of course, it deals with all the things we've talked about today and a great many more. Absolutely. Well, Ed, it has been truly a wonderful time talking with you today, learning Thank about you so your much. incredible career, your stories. Um, and you really are an inspiration to us and our audiences, especially at this time to you know, see what you molded for yourself in life, despite some hardship along the way and have been able to, you know, nonetheless persevere and, you know, make your mark in the world. So thank you so well, much for joining before us. Before we say goodbye, let me say to, to you, to both of you and to all the young people who are watching, there is a way to make your way. The world always looks like there isn't a way. And for me, it definitely looked like there wasn't a way. I was in poverty in Oklahoma and there was no way. And obviously <laughs> there is a way and there was a way. So do know that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that last episode. We're so excited to announce the launch of our campaign for two very important organizations. Broadway Cares and the Actors Fund to directly benefit the theater industry in the new year. With the inspiration and initiation from Broadway's Cesar Samayoa and Delon Grant of Come From Away, we will now be accepting donations to our company Venmo, which is at Whatcha Doin Podcast, for the near future to split the donations between those two worthy organizations. And from there, we will be doing a big monthly donation to each organization on behalf of our podcast and its guests. We hope you can see it in your heart at this time to spare whatever you can. A dollar goes a long way right now. And 
it's all to help an industry that has given us all so much. Thank you so much for all of your help to our listeners and followers. And please spread the word. We really appreciate it.